Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be looking at the first part of Matthew chapter 2 this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand now as I read this for us. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15. Let me uh, tell you before I read this, uh, there's, there's a supernatural thing happening when we read the Bible. This is not an ordinary book. This is an active book. It's, it's living. It's nothing short of a miracle that we have God's word. The fact that God hasn't just given us over to ourselves and said, hey, look, you live however you want, whatever the consequences, whatever, whatever the wrath that results, uh, the fact that he has had so much mercy on us that he would say, I, I want to speak to you as your, your loving father, this benevolent God who will never give up on you. So with that in mind, put your full attention on Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Y'all can have a seat. God, we want to tell you thank you. And we want to ask that you would author in us a genuine gratitude for your word Whatever our situation in life, whatever circumstances we're facing, the, the main, most important thing is that we would have a sincere addiction to your word. Jesus tells us very clearly, we don't live by bread alone. Whatever resource we need, whatever help we need, whatever counsel or guidance we need through whatever the situation, the word is what we need. The word is the most vital thing to our, our lives. It's our soul food. And so this is a tremendous privilege that we get to read your word whenever we want. And then, and then we get to gather once a week in this set apart, special, everybody gathered together sort of way to contemplate your word together. And we thank you for that. And we ask that you would, would really uh, cause us 
to be deeply invested and, and receptive as we ponder this passage this morning. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In approximately three weeks, my family and I will gather in our living room to give and receive gifts. And it's really hard to miss. It's sort of a spectacle because there's a whole pile of presents. Uh, we are Americans after all, so, so we buy a lot of presents and we, we receive a lot of presents, give a lot of presents. So it's hard to miss because there's this whole pile of gifts there. Furthermore, these gifts are tucked under and surrounding uh, a tree. So, so we've taken a tree from the great outdoors. It's been cut down and, and stationed in our home. So we have a pine tree in our house. It's kind of crazy. Uh, if it wasn't tradition, if it wasn't custom, it'd be like, what is this tree doing in your house? But, but we, we make a big deal of this giving and receiving of gifts. And so we have this tree. And then um, in our family, we have a tradition when we, we gather to open presents and give presents, we go one by one. So it's not just a, a frenzy of opening presents. Uh, one member of our family will get a gift and we will all give our attention to that member of the family. We will watch them open the gift and then we'll move to the next member and so on until all the gifts are open. Now, even after all of that, I have to admit to you and confess to you that I still get very, very distracted. Even with all the obvious attention that, that is being placed on the giving and receiving of gifts, I still get very, very distracted. So, for example, when one of my family members is opening a present, uh, they, they will rip off some of that wrapping paper or discard part of the package, and I will watch that garbage hit the floor. And, and it starts to accumulate. And I, I'm very OCD. I'm kind of uptight about, about you know, trash on the floor. And so I'll start to see the wrapping paper and the, the packaging and, I, and I'll lose sight of the whole point of this, which is that we're together as a family and, and we're just we're celebrating, you know, each other and we're giving each other gifts and receiving gifts. Or sometimes um, I'll, I'll get distracted by the, the, the cost of a gift. Like there's a lot of gifts my kids open, for example, and I'll think, I, I didn't know we had bought that gift because my wife does a lot of the gift buying. And, and that's great. But I'll think, I wonder how much that cost. And, you know, we have to save for college and, and buying cars and paying for insurance. And so I'll get distracted with, with finances sometimes during this whole gift-giving tradition. Or probably the worst one is um, one of my family members will open a gift, and I'll tell. I can tell right away, oh, no, this gift requires assembly. So, so I totally lose sight of the joy of, of my child opening that gift, and I think, oh, no. This, this gift is going to require my time and my attention, and it's going to be really frustrating because I'm going to have to figure out first how to get it out of the box because they, like, weld it to the box sometimes. And then, and then I'm going to have to assemble this thing. And it's very distracting. And again, the whole point of this whole tradition is to enjoy my family, just to be there, to be grateful uh, for these people and to give gifts to them, to receive gifts from them, to just relish this time together as a family. But I get distracted. And we see the same thing happening here. The, the first Noel, the original Christmas story, people are very, very distracted. I mean, simply put, God arrives, the greatest gift humanity could ever receive. And people are really, really distracted. So the first example of that we see is in verse 1 through 6. We read about this guy, Herod, and he is the king. Specifically, he's the king of the Jews, the, the Jews are the people who have received the, the promises of God. 
for thousands of years. Back in Genesis 3, God said, I'm going to send a Savior to, to deal with all corruption, all brokenness, all evil. And you, the Israelites, are going to be the, the carriers and the stewards of this promise, this mysterious Messiah that is coming. And Herod is the king of that community. He's the earthy, earthly momentary king. And now we read that the true king, not, not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the world, the king of kings, he has arrived. So, so you'd think that the guy occupying this momentary station of earthly king of the Jews, he, he would now be, be excited and, and ready to relinquish the throne and say, the true king has come. Furthermore, we know from history that Herod has, built, he has built an impressive temple, a house for God. And now we read that God has come. If you built a temple, a house for God, and then God arrives, you'd think, well, you would be the first to know and the first to celebrate the arrival of the God for whom you built the house. But Herod seems to be completely oblivious. He's completely unaware of this reality that God has arrived. He's distracted with his own reputation, his own agenda, his own empire. He's very preoccupied with his own life. This passage also mentions priests and scribes. So these guys have spent their lives learning about God. As we, as we read through the Gospels, it's clear that they don't really know God, but they know a lot about God. So they, they take a lot of pride in their academic impressiveness. These, these guys are intellectually elite they are theological experts, but when God shows up in everyday life, they're oblivious. And we can all relate to this. We're all distracted. We get preoccupied with so many trivial things. And it's, it's, so, it's so silly what we get distracted with and preoccupied by. Here's an example. I was filling up my car with gas this past week. And, you know, so I pull in the gas station, put gas in the car. I get back in the car, head down the road. Not even half a mile down the road, I see another gas station. The price is four cents cheaper. And I, I kid you not, for, for probably 30 minutes, maybe upwards of an hour or more, I was just so frustrated that I overpaid. I overpaid four or five cents, y'all. It's not a big deal. But I think, oh, you know, just that gets to me. These, these gas station people, they know... They know what the cheapest price is. Why can't they all just make it the same price? And, and what is it? What is it that troubles me about this? Well, these gas station folks are playing me for a fool. That's, that's really what it is. As I thought about this, it, it's not so much the, the finances. It's that my, my reputation as, as a competent consumer of whatever the products, I mean, that's what's on the line. I, I'm being played for a fool I'm preoccupied with my identity, my self-made, self-managed identity. That's really what bothers me. We make everything in life orbit around our reputation, our identity, our self-made, self-managed identity. Here's another example. This past week, I was driving my son to soccer practice in the 5 o'clock traffic hour. So it's going to be frustrating. There's going to be traffic. And so it started right when we were trying to pull out of our neighborhood onto a main road. And it just traffic. We couldn't, we couldn't get out onto the main road. And my, my son, Henry, he, he, he could attest to this. Yeah, my dad was hyper frustrated. He was a petulant, uh, very impatient man in this moment. So we finally get out onto the road. 
and I'm grumbling, and I'm frustrated. And then, I mean, probably, I don't know, a quarter mile down the road, we hit another traffic jam. And I'm just so frustrated. And as I thought about this, I started getting curious. Why is it that I get so frustrated? Again, is it, is it just the circumstance? Is that really what is frustrating me? No, it's my identity. Because what, I, what I'm so angry about is that, you know, I'm going to get the reputation of being the kind of person who is running late. We're going to show up to the event, and people are going to say, ah, there's Tyler, not a respecter of other people's time, always running late. You know, he's so late. Or they're going to think, you know, this guy's lived in Charlotte 20 years. He should know how to manage traffic, at least leave early enough to get to, get to the place on time. Or more, more so, like, know the back roads, you know? Like, competent drivers who've lived in a city for two decades, they should be able to work their way around the traffic jams with the use of their GPS and knowing the back roads, right? I mean, Jason Bourne can glance at a map and know the whole layout of a city he's never been to. Right? I've been here 20 years. And, and I'd like to think, you know, I'm kind of like Jason Bourne, but I'm not. Right? And, and that bothers me. It makes me insecure. Right? Because I want my identity to be this sort of godlike, you have it all under control, you're super sufficient, you're super competent. And there are all these reminders in life that, no, you're, you're frail, you're not in control. And then when you feel frail and not in control, you act like a petulant, impatient childish man, right? And that's what's going on with Herod and the priests and the scribes. I mean, Herod, he acts like a petulant, impatient, childish man. As you read later in this chapter, we're not going to tackle that part of the passage this morning, but he, he just goes nuts. He can't handle the idea of another king that he has to now compete with. We see the priests, the scribes, Herod, they are examples of, of what it looks like to be totally preoccupied with your own identity, your own reputation. They're obsessed with themselves. They're not obsessed with God, the arrival of God. They're obsessed with, with themselves. It, it really begs the question, do, do I want to know God? Do I really want to glorify God and enjoy God and love God? Or do I want the reputation of being someone who knows God and glorifies and enjoys God. Because Herod, again, he built a temple for God. So he wants people to think he's a godly king. I mean, he built our religious center. He, he built the building where we gather for worship. So he clearly wants the reputation of being a godly man. But there's no evidence that he actually wants to be a godly man. The scribes and the Pharisees, they, they study the word of God. Is that because they want to know God? Or do they study the word of God because it makes them seem smart? It makes them appear intellectually impressive to everybody in the community. And then they, they are greeted in these ways that make them feel venerated and special and esteemed. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that there will be people who come to him. And they have all of these impressive items on their resumes. They'll say, Jesus, you are our Lord. So they're professing faith in Jesus. They're saying, we associate and identify as followers of you, Jesus. And uh, as proof of our faithfulness and, and how zealous we are for you, Jesus, we would like to point out that we have prophesied in your name. We have delivered people from intense oppression. We have cast out demons from people in your name. We have done many mighty works. 
not, not mundane works, but mighty, impressive-looking works in your name. And Jesus responds to those folks by saying, I'm not sure we know each other. I, I, I don't doubt or downplay the fact that you did any of those things you just said. It's just that the primary issue is whether or not we know each other. And this is a very sobering passage. God is saying, look, look you, you could make your life about all of these big, impressive objectives. These, these items on your resume, all these impressive, significant things that you've done. And Jesus says, no, the real issue is whether or not we know each other. Do you know me? Not do you have a reputation for knowing a lot about me or doing impressive things in my name, but do you know me? In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus very succinctly says, eternal life, full, forever life, is that you would simply know me. That's what he says. He says that you would know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's what eternal life is. Not doing all these impressive things that earn you some impressive reputation, but do you know Jesus, the Christ? And, and do you savor what he was sent to accomplish on your behalf? That's the spirit of Christmas. Jesus wants us to be obsessed with him and his mission. You know this word Christmas? It's this combination of Christ and mass. Mass is taken from this Latin word that means mission. So what is the Christ's mission? His mission is to come and accomplish for you the most impressive, significant moment of your life. 2,000 years ago, before any of us were born, the most impressive thing that you ever did, you didn't actually do it. It was done for you in a life you didn't live and in an infinitely atoning death that, that paid for the penalty that you owed. That's the most significant thing of your life. Uh, one of Jesus' followers says this. He says, if you behold that, that gospel truth, if that gets a hold of you, if it gets inside of you, he says, here's what's going to happen. You will be crucified with Christ. This is, this is very obsessive-sounding language. You don't, you don't just know about Jesus, but you're crucified with Jesus. And it is no longer you who live. It's no longer about your self-made, self-managed identity. It's about the identity that is given to you exclusively from Jesus. The Christ who lives in you, the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Again, the most impressive, significant moment of your life. Your core identity, your sense of worth, Everything that fuels your, your freedom and liberty in this world comes from what happened 2,000 years ago in the, the birth, the life, the death, and resurrection of this Son of God who came to save you. And you live comprehensively united to him. The Gospel of John says, apart from him, you can do nothing. That's a, that's a pretty definitive, comprehensive thing to say. Apart from this Savior, you can do nothing. So should we be obsessed with Jesus? Yes. Back in 1922, a lady named Helen Lemel wrote a song called The Heavenly Vision. We know it as Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. She says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Don't navel gaze. Don't look at yourself. Look at Jesus. Look full at Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And she says, if you do that, here's what's going to happen. The things of this earth are going 
to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. And that's exactly right. Jesus' mission is to distract us from all the things that sinfully distract us, to hijack our distraction, to redeem our preoccupation, and to make us preoccupied with him so that the things of this world that normally hold our attention, those things now become peripheral. They don't, they don't entirely go away, but they grow strangely dim in comparison with the magnitude of this Messiah named Jesus who has come to save me from myself and to give me my core identity. And we see God authoring this kind of infatuation, this obsession in a number of characters in the nativity narratives. If you go back and read Luke chapter 2, you'll see God authoring this obsession in these shepherds, these guys who are told about the arrival of King Jesus, the Messiah. You see this in the angels Right? Myriads of angels obsessed with the birth story, the, the arrival of the Son of God into this broken world. You see this in the story of Simeon and Anna, just waiting, anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. And God authors this redeemed distraction or this holy obsession in these astrologers that we read about here in Matthew chapter 2. Now, we're not precisely told where these guys are from, so that's not primary. We know that they're from the east. People speculate, are they from uh, Persia, modern-day Iran, or Babylon, modern-day Iraq, or China? Uh, I actually think they're from Babylon, originally from Babylon. Uh, these, these magi, wise men, they're like magicians, sorcerers, enchanters. And I think they're from Babylon because the Bible tells us a story of this guy named Daniel, who was like the Dumbledore of his day in Babylon. You know this? I'm not making this up. You might think I'm making a joke. Go back and read Daniel. And, and you'll read that he was the headmaster of a school of magic, sorcery, and enchantment. One of, one of God's most devout, faithful followers was ordained to be the Dumbledore of Babylon. That's, that's not putting it too, too absurdly or that's not a stretch. And so imagine if you're Daniel, you're the headmaster of the school of magic in Babylon. Well, you control the curriculum, you know. You get to decide, like, what do the lectures and, and the curriculum of the school get to be about? Well, Daniel knows. Daniel knows something about the promises of the Christ, the mission of this promised Christ. So I think he's influencing the student body of the Babylonian school of magic. And I think that's how these guys know something about this messianic star. That's how I imagine it. It's, it's really interesting, wherever these guys are from, what we know for sure is that they ain't Jewish. These are not Hebrew guys. So we know for a fact that their primary job is not to scan the night sky searching for signs of a Jewish king. But that's what they're doing. They see the star, and instead of doing whatever their primary job, they do, they do the job of being really preoccupied and obsessed with this this star of the Christ. I know what this is like. Back in 2004, when, when my wife and I first moved to Charlotte, I got a job at Dick's Sporting Goods. And my job, what I was supposed to do, was I was supposed to walk around, talk to customers, and say, hey, can I help you find anything? Or if I found an item that was out of place, put it back in its proper place. Or I was supposed to fold you know, T-shirts and sweatshirts and make them look presentable so that people would be enticed and they'd buy more products. And I don't know if this is still true, but back in 2004, 
Dick's Sporting Goods, at least the one where I worked, they had a huge screen, like the size of this whole wall, probably. And all day long, it just showed sports highlights, like top 10 sports plays from the previous day. And so I didn't, I didn't do any of my primary job most of the time. <laughs> I just stood and watched the top 10 sports highlights, because that's way more enamoring. That's way more worthy of my attention than, can I help you find anything? Can I help you buy stuff you don't need? Like, I'm going to watch sports. And that's what's going on with these wise men from the East. Whatever their, whatever their Babylonian astrology job was for the day, once they see this star, that has completely hijacked their attention. They're not going to get any other work done that day. Now all they can think about is, we've got to go see this baby that has just been born. The king of the universe. The king of kings has just arrived on planet Earth. And, and so we've got to get everything together. I mean, imagine all the logistical things you'd have to tell them and then to Bethlehem to visit this toddler peasant king. It's a, it's a huge undertaking. These wise men from the East are superlative examples of what it looks like to be obsessed with Christmas. So let's just kind of break it down. They see the star. Obviously, they take a leave of absence. I mean, they can't leave, you know, without saying to their employer, hey, we're not going to be around a while, so I don't know if we've earned enough PTO or whatever, but we're leaving. They have to say farewell to their families, you know, their wives, their kids, whoever, whoever they do life with. They cash in their 401ks, right? They pull out all the gold and frankincense and myrrh from their savings accounts. They hazard this massive journey. I mean, this is like a Frodo Samwise epic journey. And then eventually they arrive in Jerusalem and they discover that this, this Jewish king that you would expect to be in the capital in Jerusalem, he's not there, but they're not deterred. They persevere, they endure, they start asking around, they receive a tip that this savior of the world might actually be in this shanty town, this like podunk village where all the poor people live, south of Jerusalem, the little town of Bethlehem. And they go there. Somehow this star, I don't know how this works, but it like shifts and tells them the exact street address of where to find this peasant toddler kid. And they do, they find him. And there he is with his mom, right? Low-income family, Joseph, Mary, little toddler, just a little peasant. And they are not disappointed. It says they fall down. I mean, imagine this. Weird. It would be really, really weird. But that's what they do. They see this little toddler and they fall down and they start worshiping him and they give him all their wealth, all this gold and frankincense and myrrh. They're obsessed with Christmas. Buddy the Elf has nothing on these guys. I mean, these guys have hazarded way more to worship at the feet of, of the true Christ, right? The, the true character of Christmas. It's not Santa, by the way. It's Jesus. And obviously this obsession... It comes with all kinds of risks. It's reckless. It's dangerous. I mean, the costs, the sacrifices that they had to make to take this, this trip, the perils of traveling that far and that long, and at that time in human history, the trouble that is stirred up in the aftermath of their arrival. Christmas, we learn, is very, very dangerous. To be obsessed with Christmas like these wise men from the East, it comes with all kinds of risks. It, it it triggers all kinds of dangers. And so we see that in verse 12 and following. We see the wise men in the, of the east, after they in, encounter Jesus, after they worship Jesus, and they give him the gold and frankincense and myrrh, they are warned in a dream by God 
not to go back to Herod. Now, now just pause here for a second. These guys, it would be like a major like diplomatic event for these guys from the Far East to show up in Jerusalem and talk to King Herod. And so when King Herod orders them to report back to him, I mean, that's not a suggestion. Like, the international relations between Jerusalem, the Israelites, and wherever these guys are from, I mean, that kind of hangs in the balance. So you don't just blow that off. You don't just not check back in with Herod. But that's what they do, because they're warned in a dream that Herod is not to be trusted. And then they have to go home another way. And that may sound like a, just a small logistical matter. Going another way, it's full of all kinds of new risks and adventures and dangers. Right? I mean, they don't know this other way they're supposed to go. They're just going out on faith because they were warned in a dream that they have to go back home in some other way. It's just riddled with danger. All these menacing vibes flavor this story. And then it goes on in verse 13. God sends an angel to Jesus' dad, Joseph, and he says, you have to get out of here right now. Imagine this. God sends a messenger to you later today or tonight, and they say, just grab your loved ones, grab you know, the essentials, and just flee. In the night, you got to get out of here. Because the king, not, not just a threat, but somebody who has the resources to act on his threat. right? He's got like henchmen that he can send to your house to destroy your son. He says, that's the threat. And so you gotta, you got to book it out of here. you got to go to a, a land you've never probably been to. Right? you got to go to a place where you don't know anyone, you don't know the language, you don't know the culture, you don't know the customs, and you got to live there for a while as a refugee in order to spare your son, to save him. That's what's going on. Christmas is a dangerous thing. The first Noel all throughout Scripture is described as this very dangerous, risky thing. I would invite you later today to go read Revelation 12. Revelation 12 describes the nativity, and it describes it with extremely intense imagery. So, just a heads up, it does not describe a silent night. It describes it like this. It describes a woman in agony. She's crying out in birth pains. So, so not quiet, not calm, not tranquil. She is in the agony of birth, and she's laboring. So that's intense. And then to make matters worse, it, it says a great red dragon with seven heads shows up, he sweeps his tail through outer space and knocks one-third of the stars out of the heavens. So, like, you remember in Armageddon when Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck went up to tackle just one asteroid, right? I mean, that was a huge project. They drilled into it, you know, detonated a nuclear bomb to divert it from hitting Earth. One-third of the stars are sent hurling toward Earth because of the, the reckless sweeping tail of this dragon. And then the dragon positions himself over the woman, because he's going to devour this child once it's born. That's how Revelations, Revelation 12 describes the first Noel. It's intense. I got some homework for you, for you kids. This is tailor-made for you kids. Later today, after church, when you get back home, check your nativity sets, okay? And, and scan and see, is there any seven-headed red dragon in, you know, the manger scene? And if there's not, I need you to muster all your kid influence and power to pressure your parents and nag your parents and say, we need to acquire a seven-headed red dragon to put into the nativity scene. Because the Bible says that's, that's what happened. Come on, we want to be accurate, don't we? We want to be faithful to what the scriptures reveal, don't we? And your, your parents, what are they going to say? 
No, we don't want to believe what the Bible says. I mean, they're going to get it. Right? So then you're going to end up with a seven-headed red dragon as part of your nativity set. And then people are going to visit and be like, what is that doing there? And you make Revelation 12. That's why that's there. It's going to make Christmas a lot more fun. God is saying, look, a, a very real spiritual war is raging here. Very, very real. It's not theoretical. And the battleground is primarily waged in the territory of distraction. Like, what preoccupies your attention? What are you obsessed with? Probably a lot of us don't think of the screw tape letters as being, you know, Christmas literature. <laughs> but, but I would suggest that in many ways it is. I mean, it's not far from what we already adopt as Christmas literature. The, the Christmas story, uh, Christmas Carol, whatever, by Charles Dickens. I mean, that, there's some dark, menacing things going on in that story. And, you know, trying to get us to, to recal recalibrate and orient ourselves to, like, what is Christmas really supposed to be about? In the screw tape letters, um, it's really helpful because the way, the way temptation is presented, the way the, the spiritual warfare is presented to us in that book, it doesn't present as being overly diabolical, like the devil's doing all these really crazy things, getting everybody to like murder everybody else. It, it's way more subtle. And as you read through those letters, the screw tape letters, you see that the game plan when it comes to how demons want to tempt us it really orbits around just keeping us distracted, just keeping us preoccupied with life's trivialities. Just keep them anxious and troubled by all these trivialities in life. There's this part in the book where Screwtape says, you know, it doesn't really matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge people away from God. The work of Satan is just to, to, to nudge you away from God, help you drift away from God through distraction. Screwtape says, look, murder is really no better to us than any of the little mundane distractions if, if the little mundane distractions do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual road, the one without any sudden turnings, without any pains of conscience, without any milestones, without any signposts. Just muddle them and mire them in distractions. Take their focus subtly off Jesus and put it onto something else. And you see examples of this in the gospel narratives. In Luke chapter 10, there's that very famous scenario where Jesus rebukes Martha. He's got these great friends in the town of Bethany, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And Martha, she is anxious and troubled by many things. That's what Jesus says to her. And, and it's worth pausing and thinking about what things? What is she distracted by? I mean, is she looking at scandalous stuff on her phone that she shouldn't be looking at? Is, is she, you know, thinking about how she's going to steal from her neighbors? No, no. She's not distracted and preoccupied with any overt evil thing. She's distracted with, like, the household chores, the tasks that need to get tackled around the house. She's distracted by the fact that her sister Mary doesn't seem to be pulling her weight. Her sister Mary is neglecting some of the household chores and duties and, and furthermore, Mary's not really observing the social conventions of their day. Like women didn't sit at the feet of, of men, rabbis. You know, that's what men would talk in the living room. Women would do the chores. And Martha's saying, like, my sister's not doing that. So she brings that up. And, and Jesus says, Martha, Mary has chosen the best thing, the, the good primary thing, which is obsession with me. You know, all those tasks, all those chores, all those things in life that you need to get to, yes, those, those are significant, but they are secondary. What is primary? What, what has to be your infatuation and your preoccupation? It has to be me. So 
What would it look like to be distracted with Jesus? Well, using that Martha Mary story as a template, I think we could say for every one to-do list item you tackle, you need to take two or three timeouts to just be still and look at Jesus and savor his love and his mercy and the mission he accomplished to redeem you. I don't think that's a stretch. I think for every one look I take at my phone, maybe I should take three looks at some passage in Scripture and relish the story of my salvation as it is described in the Gospels, found in Christ alone. That's what it would look like to be distracted with Jesus instead of something else, preoccupied with Christ. Here's another example. We, we could use Matthew 25 as our guide of what it would look like to be enamored with Jesus. So this, this holiday season, maybe what you being obsessed with Christmas looks like is you, Jesus says, I am hidden in the lives of the poor. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, we give clothing to people who don't have adequate clothing. When you feed people who don't have adequate food resources, I am there. And when you're with them, you're with me. You're serving me when you serve those people. And if you're obsessed with Jesus, you're going to want to be where he is. You want, to get, you want to get as close to him as you can possibly get. I took my daughter Haven to a, a Need to Breathe concert earlier this year, and we stood as close as we could possibly stand. I mean, it was, it was kind of ridiculous on some level because it was like we were trying to find little gaps in the people ahead of us. I'm like, could we squeeze in and just be this close instead of this close? I mean, we just we were obsessed. We just want to get as close as we could. And Jesus says, if you want to get close to me, you got to go and put yourself in places where I'm telling you this is where I primarily hang out. I don't primarily hang out with the wealthy. It doesn't, he doesn't totally ignore them, but he says, you know, they're heaping burdens on themselves. They're making it harder for themselves to enter the kingdom of heaven. But when you think about where do I really spend my most emphatic, joyful, zealous time, he says, I'm doing that with the poor. I'm doing that with the Samaritans. I'm doing that with the outcasts. I'm doing that with the widows. I'm doing that with the orphans. I'm doing that with the marginalized. So maybe this Christmas season... You decide, I want to get obsessed with Jesus more. And that means I'm going to put myself in some places where maybe I haven't historically put myself. At a minimum, being obsessed with Jesus means that you're going to commit to loving your family and your friends more. All these people that frankly annoy you because <laughs> you know what they're really like and you know what they're really thinking and you know the motive or the thing behind why they said what they just said or why they did what they just did. It's just so hard to love these people that we really know because we have all the dirt on them. We have all this baggage in this history. And God says, okay, you know how the world will know that you're my disciples? It's not by, you know, the theological books on your bookshelf. It's not by your church attendance record. It's by whether or not you actually love the people in your life, the people who are hard to love. Do you actually love them? Do you actually forgive them? Do you treat them as more significant than yourself? Do you give them, the, give them the benefit of the doubt? I mean, that's what treating people as more significant would look like, right? Instead of saying, no, I know what you really mean. It's give them the benefit of the doubt. Instead of being offended and getting defensive, it's giving them the benefit of the doubt. It's being patient. It's serving them. It's sharing with them. It's being kind toward them. Not keeping a record of wrongs. Loving the people that you just see day in and day out. God says, that's what obsession with me will look like. And it begs the question, where is that kind of love going to come from? Because let's, let's be honest, it's not, it's not just deep down in us. 
It's not something that we could just pull out of ourselves if, if we looked deep enough and hard enough within ourselves. If we're going to love like this, if we're going to be obsessed with Jesus like this, then, then it's going to come from God. It's going to come from outside ourselves. An in, a supernatural invasion of our lives is going to have to occur if we're going to love like this. In a minute, we're going to come to this table, and the way Jesus would put it is, he'd say, if you're going to love much, you have to savor and relish. Not just know about, but you really have to digest and savor how much you've been forgiven. That's the paradigm. Luke 7, verse 47, he says, those who love much, you know how they do that? They relish that they've been forgiven much. They don't, know, they don't just know about the atonement. They don't just know about the story of Jesus. They've tasted it. They've, they've embraced it personally, and it's gotten inside of them. That's how they love much. And the Bible says this meal, for all kinds of reasons, comes with a warning. It's dangerous. It's risky, at a minimum, to admit that you need to be forgiven this much. Because look at the magnitude of this forgiveness. This is not like you bumped into somebody and said, excuse me, and they say, you're forgiven. This is you've committed treason against the God of the universe. And the, the only just penalty for that is infinite wrath. And so either you're going to pay the price of infinite wrath, hell, or someone who has the power to pay infinite price comes and pays it for you. And the Son of God, infinite, eternal, unchangeable Jesus, he says, I'm going to come and do that for you. And I'm not going to do it in this begrudging kind of way. I'm going to do it as the joy set before me because I treasure y'all. I want you to be my wife. I want to live with you and enjoy you forever. And so I'm going to pay. I'm going to pay this lavish price in order to have you as my treasured possession. And to admit that this is what it takes to be saved like that, that's, that's hard for us. We're going to have to swallow a lot of pride. In fact, we're going to have to do more than swallow it. We're going to have to surrender it all, cut it off, give it up. We're going to have to surrender all our arguments of our own self-righteousness. Nothing good dwells in us. That's what the Bible said. Even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, the Bible says. You're, you're surrendering all your efforts. If you come to this meal, be warned, you're surrendering every ounce of your energy that goes toward a self-made, self-managed identity. You're saying, my life is not about what I can make or come up with. It's about the life of Jesus that is given to me. On a life I didn't live, a death I didn't die, that is where I stake my identity. That is where I find my sense of worth. That is where I find the liberty to live day in and day out. It's not about my resume. It's about the resume of Jesus. So be warned, you're relinquishing all your most righteous, impressive things, and you're saying, no, I'm, I'm giving up all of that, and I'm, and I'm receiving this. You're renouncing any excuses you think you have. You're not the victim. Primarily, you don't have an excuse. You, you are the agent of sin. This is built into our membership vows. If you're a true Christian, you say, I confess that I am a sinner in the sight of God. If you come to this meal, you're saying, I, if left to myself, I deserve God's displeasure and his wrath, and I am completely without hope if I, if I am left to myself. And if you come to this meal, you're saying, I am going to root my identity in receiving the mercy of God 
and clinging to Jesus, being obsessed with Jesus and rest upon him alone for my salvation. And the mantra of my life is, apart from him, I can do nothing. As I read earlier, if you come to this meal, what you're saying is, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this meal. We thank you for dying for us and loving us the way you do. God, we pray that uh, you would cause us to savor Jesus, that you would cause us to relish this redemption, not just know about it, but really take it to heart. Even if we've been a Christian for a long time, even if we've had past episode of love of God, I pray that we would receive it afresh this morning, that we would be obsessed with Jesus because of your authoring and perfecting power in us. We pray this in your name.